0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom bracha. I'm Avram Kivalevich. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni, who's in Eretz Yisrael. It's Eretz Tishabov. just a little while before what can be called the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. Um... I think everybody will agree to that. Uh Tisha B'av specifically has become a time that I would say a cottage industry has flourished on Tishabov. And that is the cottage industry of rediscovering the pain and suffering of the Jewish people in ways that previous generations perhaps only had oral access to and I think that's what's occurred especially with media and, and a, the global technology is using Tisha B'Av as sort of a way, not only to talk about the kinis and the service that are described there and figuring out what they mean, but also to dwell on the horrors of the Holocaust specifically. Uh, and every Tisha B'Av people open up books and watch videos uh, to describe life in the Warsaw Ghetto and Auschwitz and other terrible places. And it's part of the avoda in many people's mind is to think about Jewish suffering, think about what we've suffered through and asking and begging God to get out of it, but also to sort of wallow a little bit. I would say even kinis are the tefillists are there, but a lot of it is the wallowing and understanding how the oppression has what it has done to us. And I think, uh, Dr. Juni, thanks for taking time to be here. And I think you've probably contributed in a scholarly and an important way to the idea of the oppression of the Jews and something which people are going to find a little bit strange, I'm going to say this, but in Jewish humor and Jewish humor's response to oppression. I know you've done a number of papers and uh, I've... uh, had the pleasure, I would say, and it's, it's interesting to use that word, but to actually go through some of your work, a work that you did in 2001 that was published in the Journal of General Psychology, uh, self-effacing wit as a response to oppression and the dynamics in ethnic humor. So a- instead of me uh, you know, going through your ideas and quoting them back to you, why don't you give us a little bit of a background as to your investigations and what you've discovered, and particularly how it relates to you personally, because you are a person of great humor. You grew up in a household that uh, you heard a lot of this self-effacing uh, Jewish humor and Jews talking about themselves. So tell me about your your research, your discoveries, and discoveries, and maybe what your message is. About uh, that we can add to make the t- this tissue above a little bit
1: different. Okay, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let me just run through a couple of points first. <clears throat> in myself, when it gets the tissue above, um, I think I have an easier time at it than people may have had 100 or 200 years ago because I don't have to harken back in terms of the suffering of the Jewish people for 2,000 years. I can harken back to the Holocaust where I would say I was born after the Holocaust, but I lived through it psychologically and developmentally. So to me, it's a very easy way station to connect with mourning, mourning for laws for the Jewish people. A second thing I just wanted to say is that self-effacing humor or ethnic humor is usually not funny to the overall population. The overall population finds it odd. Basically, it sounds like you're just knocking people. The only people who find it funny are some segments of the population itself, so within Jews within Blacks, those are the two um, populations I studied most. Hispanics somewhat, um, Asian less. But basically, it's funny to certain segments of the population, providing it's done by an insider. Jewish humor is never funny to Jews when it's told by an outsider. Black humor is never funny to Blacks when it's told by an outsider. Only when it's an insider. Okay. And third of all, I feel pretty close to this field of study because there was a lot of humor in my house growing up, especially coming from my dad. And my dad had a horrible, horrible experience in the Holocaust. He basically had his whole family uh, killed because of him, so to speak. In other words, he was a Polish citizen who was married to a Hungarian woman and raised a family in Hungary. And when the... um, germans made a pact with the uh, hungarians at the beginning of the second world war the deal was that they would not bother any of the hungarian jews and they didn't for quite a few years but they had a license to hound and to basically annihilate any foreign jews and um my father assumed that his family was safe since they were hungarian and what happened once is when the um Hungarian police showed up early in the war to his house. He basically ran out of a back window and just escaped. And then he returned later in the day to find out that his family was deported and killed. And the rationale was that if you're married to a Polish person, then you are a Polish citizen. So he had this horrible experience sitting on him um, for many years. And I grew up within that. And one of the ways my father dealt with it Was of course to keep it silent. Like I never knew about that my father even had a family until I was quite grown up. But secondly, it was clear that he used a lot of humor, Jewish humor, to deal with it. And that kind of humor was more of gallows humor or ghastly rather than fun itself. So that really got me thinking what is this all about? What function does it serve? And it um, got me quite a few. Um, papers in the literature and made me a pseudo, a pseudo expert on the uh, um, entire field. So that's my introduction to it.
0: You know, it's just um, can you summon up uh, a sample, something from your dad over show that, of, uh, course,
1: of course, not a problem. Okay, so this is working things backwards. Usually, what we do is we present a theory we present data and then we give you some anecdotes but sure we can do it backwards and my data by the way my data comes from empirical collections what made me think of theories of course is individual experiences with patients who had all kinds of psychiatric difficulties but the data really comes from empirical studies and if you care about that you can either check it up on the web, look at some of the uh, studies I've done, or I can explain it to you. But let, okay, let's start backwards. Let's start with some humor. Okay. Yeah. And and the, the, humor.
0: Uh, the podcast world is always backwards. It's always about personality, okay. personality and, and, and 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 the pepper of humor first. And then <laughs> as you wade into the discussion, hopefully the, the ideas, uh, you absorb okay. them.
1: Okay, backwards is good. Backwards is good. Okay, so here's the story. The story is, and this is told by my father, um, who was a fairly respectable rabbinic figure, you know, had, had quite a following before the war. Basically, here in the United States, he was a teacher of Gemara, etc. quite devoted to his job as someone who would not talk about his experience in the Holocaust at all. So this is how he talked. He talked through you So the story is... There's a rabbi who is very much endeared to the community in some shtetl, and he has only one daughter. And she's the apple of his eye, his rabbis' eyes, and they raise her, and she's raised and pampered, and they're all excited about her. And then she comes of age, and they find her the greatest husband around, the greatest bridegroom, and everybody is all... Topsy-turvy, preparing for the wedding. The entire town is decked out. and Everything's going on very nicely. And lo and behold, um, this um, young lady goes out. She falls and she dies. And of course, everybody's horribly distraught. And the people of the shul are sitting around and saying, who's going to go tell the rabbi what happened here? And nobody dares. They said, there's no way. It'll devastate them. it will kill them. And then there is the uh, town fool, or the, they have these stereotypes. And every, every Jewish culture has this stereotype, the town fool, the town jester, whoever he is, says, I'm going to go tell the rabbi. about it." And they say, fine, let's see how you do it. And he shows up to the rabbi and says, well, I have this problem. I just learned in the Gemara. It says, k'shem al hara, mevarach approximating that because I don't know it by heart. And it means that we are commanded to bless God on something bad that happens to us the same way we're commanded to bless God when something good happens. And he tells the rabbi, I don't understand. Why would I want to bless God? I just learned this. Why I want to bless God when something bad happens to And the rabbi says, hey, listen, let me explain it to you. Uh, you know, when God does something for you, does something good, then it's clear to you that it's good for you. But when God something, does something bad to you, you think, oh, it's a horrible thing. But yet, you should realize that God does something very good for you, so you have to bless him. So the guy thinks for a moment. He says, yeah, I got you. I understand that ultimately God means the best for me, so this is going to be something good. But what I can say is, okay, I'm fine, but I have to bless God for doing me bad. I'd much rather he didn't. He says, no, no, that's because you're not a real believer. If you're a real believer, you actually have to get up and say, wow, this is great. I'm blessing you, God, even though I don't know how it is. But this is fine. This is just as nice as anything else it could have done for me. He says, well, I understand you intellectually. But emotionally speaking, I can say, yes, I know for sure this is good for me. But emotionally speaking, I'm really hurting. And here it says I have to bless him the same way. It's not the same way because when I bless him for the good, my heart is in it. And a blessing for the bad that's only in my mind, but my heart is not into it. The rabbi says, No, if you are a real, real believer, if you really studied the Torah and you've studied all the holy books, then you would realize with your heart also, this is the best thing that can happen. The guy thinks for a moment, he says, Okay, I can see that I would be feeling that too. But would I bless him the same way? Like, for instance, if something great happens to me, I would be jumping out of my pants and I'd be yelling and screaming loud. I wouldn't do that if something horrible happens. He says, no, you really would. If you are really learned and you really believe, you'd be doing that. He says, well, Rabbi, let let me just try it by example. Let us say that you just found out that you won a 10 million zlato, whatever it is, kronen dollar um, lottery. Would you be happy? He says, yes, I would be happy. He says, would you bless God? He said, sure, I'd bless God. Would you get up and dance and bless God? And said, sure, I'd get up and dance and, and bless God. He says, and what if, let's say somebody told you that your house just burned down? Would you be happy? The rabbi thinks He says, yes, I would be happy. He says, would you bless God? He says, yes, I would bless God. He says, would you sit, dance, and scream, and yell, and say, wow. He thinks very much. He says, yes. I would get up and dance and say, yes. Thank you, God, for this great thing. He says, hmm. Let me ask you something. Chaz This is like totally out of the picture. Let's say chaz We're all ready for the wedding now. And your daughter, she's all ready. And something happens. Chaz And she passes away. And the rabbi looks, whoa. He says, well, tell me, rabbi, would you thank God? And he thinks, he bites his lip, he says, yes, I would thank God. I would say, I know this is the most horrible thing that I feel could have happened to me, but this is great stuff. He says, would you um, um, get up and dance? The rabbi thinks for a moment. He says, yes, I would get up and dance and say, this is great. The guy says, rabbi, start dancing. Okay? So my father says this story. And he can hardly contain his laughter getting the punchline out, and when it gets it out, he starts laughing to the point that tears are coming out of his face, and he just can't control himself. And he stops and he thinks for a moment, he says, Start dancing. And he starts again with his like uncontrollable laughter to the point of like a paroxysm, and it finally dies down. Okay? That is a story. That's a little anecdote which gives you the sense of the kind of data that I kept have coming up with blacks, with Jews, and sometimes with Hispanics. And basically, what's going on over here is something that, from a perspective of an outsider, makes no sense. Like, what are you? Th- what's what's so funny going on over here? What's going on? Okay, and I can only think about, you know, my father, the exper- the horrible experience he has. I mean. He stayed religious. He was basically a, somebody who kept educating people into a philosophy of religion and devotion to God. And to myself, I'm thinking and saying, how, what are you doing? It doesn't make any sense. If you were asking him, he probably would not, meant he says, of course it makes sense. You just don't understand and I don't understand. But the message of the joke is basically setting up this rabbi there as somebody who is off the wall. And this is a way of him saying, you see me? I'm off the wall. I'm doing things that make no sense. They're totally out of bounds. It means nothing. But somehow having that kind of vent lets him insulate himself where he goes on with his life. And when it comes time to dump out emotionally all this horror, it's dumped out in a way of a joke, in a way of humor. And I have like, Anecdote after anecdote of this, and like you know, I, my kids and my grandkids know his etzaydi's jokes. This were his kinds of jokes, which he found hilarious, and we would sit there and say, "Wow, something is really very funny." This idea, we have no idea what's going on, and yet you tell it to fellow Holocaust survivors, they get the jokes and they have plenty of their own to add. So that's starting with an anecdote, a long anecdote from way out there, and. Uh, that kind of gives us a sense of what it's like to have humor, which objectively looking is really a self aggression. It's knocking yourself, knocking your beliefs, extolling your inadequacies or your misery, and laughing about it somehow. Okay.
0: So, so yeah, so I actually, I've heard you tell the story before, and I, I still find it. I still, first of all, I love the way you tell it. But I also okay. find it. I also find it innately humorous as well. Maybe that's part of. Maybe part of it is because I sort of share a little bit of a uh, growing yes. up at a Holocaust home myself. So I think I. And,
1: and my I, dad, I have heard my dad say this countless times, and it wasn't any f- less funny to him the thirtieth time as the first time. It was so, always funny. To
0: him. So, t- so tell me, uh, Doctor Junie. Um, I know that, you know, one of the people you've shown me, uh, we're doing this with a teleconference and you've shown me your wall. And on your wall, you have some of your heroes and people that you admire. And I think it's no secret to the people who've read your papers that you are, uh, a person who's pretty well versed in the, in, in, in the writings and ideas of Sigmund Freud. Yes. So, to, so Freud did uh, write about the idea of Humor and, and, and why it's used. And maybe, I don't know if he wrote about Jewish humor, but he did write about, uh, what I think he called masochistic humor, correct? People who make, uh, using humor, which seems to put themselves down. Why don't you talk about your starting with Freud and, and what you've done with Freud's, uh, speculation and how, what you've shown, uh, through your research and data and, 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 and inventiveness, uh, to create a whole new spin on why it is that Jews are still the the, the front runners in terms of humor and, and and the specific Jewish humor that they've sort of created. So go ahead.
1: Sure. sure. So Freud himself uh, was Jewish. Um, he didn't identify as religious as such, but he definitely identified as Jewish. And his theories of self-effacing humor were. Basically, theories of Jewish humor itself. He didn't call it self-effacing humor. He called it Jewish humor. And he actually did a, um, extensive work with patients who would come in. Obviously, a lot of his patients, who were also his patrons, by the way, were Jewish. And as much as he attempted to make psychoanalysis a non-Jewish science, he still was pretty much linked into his Jewish roots, at least financially and in terms of um, a lot of the people that he uh, consorted with. Um, So Freud himself has stories. Freud has some stories about his dad and how his dad was brutalized by by non-Jews. And they're not funny. They're basically sad. I don't think they are as tragic as the ones from my dad, but they're sad stories. So Freud had a theory, and his theory was basically based on the defense mechanism. The defense mechanism is something that we do basically unconsciously, as a way of putting a spin on emotionally threatening experiences and making it less disturbing to your overall mental health. And the, he talked about a de, an identification with the aggressor defense mechanism. Um, for those of us who don't know what that is, the prime example uh, is what we often heard from Holocaust survivors from the death camps, that the most vicious treatment they got were from Jewish kapos. Jewish kapos were um, Jews who were appointed by the Nazis and the death camps to keep the Jews under control. And they would often be, or sometimes be, according to the Holocaust survivors, the most vicious um, punishers and aggressors against the Jews um, that existed in the system. And Freud, obviously, was pre-Holocaust. And he just felt that when you find self-directed humor as a way of knocking yourself, that is a way of disidentifying with your own group and identifying with the aggressive group, saying, well, I'm not really one of these victims. I really see eye to eye with the oppressors. And, um, I mean, the Red Chinese used this kind of theory. Uh, they stole it and used it as a theory of reprogramming um, POWs. But that's a, a topic that's slightly off. So let me not go there. So Freud's understanding was that this is the way we cope when we get beaten up. Um, so, so, so we so we about. make
0: just just to explain to the people who aren't that familiar. So uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the Jew or the the, the oppressed person uh, has a humorous anecdote story a one liner that as we say uh, the, the typical Jewish type of personality or the Jewish. Is gonna... Yes, and
1: I may say, think of the Vaudeville Borscht Belt. deal.
0: That's sure, sure. Yes, and and and, and, and by doing that although they seem, uh, obviously, the comedian who's saying that presents himself as a Jew, but by stucking the Jewish people and maybe even himself in the story, he actually is disconnecting himself from them.
1: Because yes. okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, saying that's them, that's not me. In fact, I'm joining the people who oppress those guys. So that's the idea, let's say, in the Catskills, when a guy would be telling uh, jokes and grossing those of the Concord. When he got to the Jew part, that guy always had an accent and talked so much differently than him that it was obvious that that was the other. So this is the old um, uh, people who are affiliated with some silly ideas, and we can laugh at them because it's not us. But if somebody would dare to include us in that, we would get very offended. Yes? All right. Yeah. Okay, so... so- let me, let me, okay, so I want to tell you where I veered. Though, uh, basically, I went beyond Freud, which I have the right to do. So, there's there another kind of way of understanding um, hurting yourself. Again, let me give you another anecdote. Not a Jew. Oh, are they Jewish? They're not Jewish. Okay, Abbott and Costello. Okay, so Abbott, you know, is this tall guy, tall, thin guy, looks a little mean. Costello is the not round, pudgy fellow. So, um, Costello did something once again to offend Abbott. And Abbott grabs this huge piece of wood and starts chasing Costello, okay? Chases him, and Costello is running all the time, screaming in his typical way until he is cornered in an alley, okay? And then Costello turns around, grabs the huge piece of board from Abbott and hits himself on the head and knocks himself out. And he's lying on the floor, And he's taunting Abbott and saying, what are you going to do now, Abbott? What can you do now? Okay? So that is another way of looking at identification with aggressor, which basically says, when you have somebody over you who is a major threat, who can hurt you very badly, that is a very intolerable situation. If you do the pain to yourself, you hurt yourself, you basically have taken control of that kind of situation. So basically what we're doing is saying, You know what? I'm not going to let myself be hurt. I'm going to hurt myself. It's not as macabre as, let's say, as the Masada mass suicide, but the notion is then, I have the power in my hands. Nobody is doing anything to me. So essentially, if there's nothing left for me to do other than just to take the power and hurt myself, I will do that. Is this logical? No, but the whole concept of any defense mechanism is not logical at all. It's basically a mechanism which saves the ego from threat. It's almost like I remember when I used to deal with AIDS patients, okay? That some of them were so leery of, not AIDS patients, families of AIDS patients. They were so scared of getting the infection that some would try to infect themselves and just get this over with. I'm not scared anymore. I'm infected. Now I can go on living my life such as it may be. So to me, those were two major ways of looking at, at identification with the aggressor. And what I did is I did an empirical study. So my empirical study was that I went to YIVO, which is the Yiddische uh, wissenschaftliche Agentur. It's an agency that tried to preserve quite a bit of the culture in forms of documents and artifacts of the, pre-Holo- of the pre-Holocaust. They existed in Manhattan, and they had tremendous archives, which you had to speak Yiddish to understand. And I had a lot of fun with that. And what I did is I went through Many of the collections they had, some of them were actually sealed collections. I was looking first for the towns that my parents came from, sealed collections of artifacts that people rescued from Europe before the Nazis had a chance to destroy them. And what I decided to look for were joke books. They used to have peddlers that went from shtetl to shtetl and sold Yiddish joke books written by people of the particular countries. And I decided, let me look at the kind of jokes people told in those communities and see if I can come up with some kind of understanding. And I had my hypothesis. I'll tell you what my hypothesis was. Um, It was a differential hypothesis. If we assume that Jews make fun of themselves and step on themselves as a way of trying to disidentify and identify with the dominant culture out there, then we should find more of this happening the more permissive the culture is. In other words, when you look at cultures that had basically no degrees of freedom for a Jew to get out of his Jewish situation and identify with the guy, there was no possibility of converting. Nobody wanted you, they wanted you to stay in your ghetto and just shut up and lie under all the oppression. Then it would not make sense that we would find a lot of jokes there that are anti-yourself, because there's no way to say that's them. You can't be the person in the Catskills who comes across with a spotless American accent and talks about them Jews. It's us Jews, it's not them. Whereas when you go to um, societies that actually are more liberal and allow Jews to leave the ghetto and become part of liberal society, we might expect more of that. On the other hand, if you have the Abbot Costello kind of icon, where people who are left with no option at all under oppression, all they can do is join the oppression and knock themselves because that's their only freedom that they have. If you think of Victor Frankl's notion of you have freedom in the most horrible situation, this is the kind of freedom he's talking about. He's not talking about freedom of escaping it. So if that's the kind of fear um, we have or that kind of rationale, then we would expect that the, you would have more and more um, anti-Jewish jokes the more liberal the society is. Okay, so here's what I did. I got joke books from um, turn-of-the-century Warsaw and Vilna, which were both very oppressive societies where you had no choice if you were a Jew other than to remain an oppressed Jew. And I also looked at London in the early 1900s, where Jews could really get out and become Rothschilds. They can really move if they had the werewolf or the gumption. And I also looked at Lettland, which was an interesting country, it's basically Lithuania or Latvia really, as we know it now, where there was after the world war, they basically became uh, very egalitarian and officially had no anti-Semitism, And many Jews rose to very high positions in the government until the whole movement died. And by the time the second world war was, it was, it was a dead place for Jews. And actually this joke book that I got from Letland was not dated but it had a price of currency on it. And the currency was one of Letland. So I knew I, I, I hit pay dirt there. So essentially I looked at humor from Warsaw and Vilna at one end, Letland and London at the other end. I went to the real um, exacting standards. I basically had all the jokes translated independently into English. I then got independent raiders who were trained to look for certain categories and they had no idea where the jokes came from. We just threw the jokes at them and they raided them. And we came up with two there were three categories, but one had to be thrown out because these raiders who were not Jewish, and we deliberately made them not Jewish, had no idea what they we're talking about. So we came up with two very simple categories. One is, is this joke basic, basically an anti-Jewish joke? Or is it an anti-Gentile joke? I don't have to get, I'll give you an example of an anti-Gentile joke. Okay. So this Jew comes to a um, an office, a, a government office in Germany and says, I need to speak to the mayor. I have a request. They said, the mayor is busy. And the guy says, well, I need to talk to him. Um, he says, well, you can't talk to him because he's very busy and it'll take a while. Um, And then the guy says, well, how long do I have to wait? And the guy says, you're going to have to wait until he's dead because he's not going to see you when he's alive. And the Jew says, that's okay, I'll wait. Okay, that's an anti-Gentile joke. (laughs) It definitely puts the Jew at a highly, much. you may not find this funny if you're Jewish because you're into self-aggressive humor. But if you're not Jewish, people find that funny. Okay, so we had them categorized for each joke, which is an anti-Jewish joke, which is an anti Why would
0: you say that's anti-Gentile? Because... Um, because
1: it's 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 putting the the it's it's a way of saying I want you dead. I don't mind if the mayor is dead. It's done in a way that you can't be held at full because you being polite, they saying I'll wait. But really, it shows that the Jewish wit means so much more than a suppression that these guys are throwing the throne. So the Jew basically triumphed there against the guy. Uh, so no, so in other
0: words, the Jew is and, he the... can't,
1: be, and he can't be blamed for it because he's being very <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so. Basically, the statistics are, and they're quite remarkable. If you look at um, in Warsaw and Vilna, the anti-Jewish and anti-Gentile jokes, the percentages are 51% anti-Jewish, 6% anti-Gentile. The rest of the jokes could not be categorized. Obviously, some of them were neither. They were just silly or ridiculous or not even funny, so they were thrown out. But those are the jokes that were rated as anti. 51% anti jew Anti Gentile 6. When you look at Letland and London, I'm sorry I can't show you a chart because this is audio, basically they get much more even. In other words, the percentage of anti Jew and anti Gentile get closer to 50 50 in Letland and in London, whereas in the oppressive, in the oppressive situations, the anti Jew is what prevails. So statistically, if you analyze that, that shows clearly that under oppressive situations where the Jew has no option where to go, that the amount of venom that's directed towards the host or the oppressor, non-Jew, is much more pronounced than there is in liberal societies where they actually um, start doing anti-Gentile jokes more. That would mean that that does not follow the pattern of making fun of Jews. So you don't make fun of the guy under oppressive situations because that doesn't get you anywhere. Whereas in the other situation, you can get back at themselves. Okay. So, this is like right. So, one, then, so, so, so yeah. this veers
0: from Freud in the sense yes. that, according to right, how did how was this uh, a steer at the Freud's yisod, as we say in the Yeshiva language?
1: Okay. Because it shows you that the anti-Jewish um, jokes that come up is not an effort to identify with the non-Jewish oppressor, because then you expect that to increase in situations where you have the opportunity to identify. In Warsaw, or in in, Lithu- in Vilna, Lithuania, you have no way of identifying with the oppressor. No way. You had as, as much chance as Fiddler did to identify with his Mekhoten uh, uh, there who's persecuting. Him. You can't do it. So the expectation is that in a place like America, you would expect it to come up more. And it doesn't. In America, it came up less. I mean, America. I'm using Latin and London as an example. As the... Um, oppression eases up, it doesn't come up more because people are not using humor as a way of disidentifying with we do. They're using it in an Abbot Costello manner, which is they are just hitting themselves because that's the only option they have. The option is, do I hit myself on the head or do I just sit there and let them hit me? So you hit yourself. That way you have the power. You have some kind of agency, which makes sense from a defense mechanism. When you feel that you're in charge, it just feels much less painful like when you ask someone do you want me to hurt you or do you want to hurt yourself many people would say let me hurt myself because then i somehow feel that i'm in control if i leave it to you who knows what you'll do
0: so so in other words freud would have would have been surprised by your yeah. findings it would have
1: yes would freud have been... would have been very offended
0: <laughs> because uh, so it's not so much as as, as masochism but it's actually uh it it actually was a key for survival and at least for some sort of dignity.
1: Right. But what I would say is that psychoanalytically, that is the explanation for masochism as well. The reason why people are masochistic is because they want to avoid somebody being sadistic to them. So they basically become partners in the crime against themselves as a way of controlling. And yes, these are my Freudian beliefs. uh, I think they're fairly accurate.
0: Um, and I know that, like you say, you, 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 you did your research, you discovered, uh, and I think, uh, what you've done, and I, especially, you know, we're sitting here as Jews, uh, waiting for Tisha B'Av and, uh, thinking about Hurban, thinking about Chorbonos. But I think, uh, beyond Tisha B'Av, talk a little bit as, as we wind up here, uh, how you think your findings could also relate to what's in the minds of so many people in the united states today which of course is uh the differences uh in in racial progress progress in, in, in what has occurred let's say during the 60s uh and what we thought was going to happen and how far we've come and have we actually made the progress uh in terms of the protests for black lives matter uh i think you mentioned before uh, humor, uh, African American humor. Why don't you uh, use what you were saying from your own discoveries and relate that a little bit to uh, the social upheavals that we're we're seeing uh, in display in the United States?
1: Well, essentially, what I see happening now to much of the progressive Jewish community in America is a disappointment in what they thought. Um, anti-Semitism was all about. And what they thought the proper way to deal with anti-Semitism was, the usual response was um, assimilation, being equal to other people, that would make you more acceptable to the society out there. So in, in a sense, what they were doing was not using humor, but using social activism as a way of disidentifying with indigenous self-centered Jewish values and to make it more um, egalitarian, world-oriented. It's sort of similar to what happened to the major um, um, joining of um, Jewish forces with the initial communist um, movement that started in the early 1900s and persisted until Stalin put a, a bitter end to it, where many of the activists for social justice and social reform who basically joined the overall um, non-Jewish society as a way of knocking uh, traditionalists who maintain some kind of caste system okay. end up themselves being victimized and I kind of feel that many of the progressive Jews in the United States feel that thing as well because they join the movements of liberalism and trying to save minorities from oppression to a certain extent and then, so to speak, it doesn't help them because when push comes to shove they're still identified as the others or the Jews. And I contrast that with a kind of, shall we say, ethnic pride that exists in many um, uh, contexts in Israel itself, where there isn't a notion of we have to make our cause one with all other oppressed causes. We have the right to stand up for ourselves and see our own values as being paramount. And that that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to persecute anybody else, of course, but it doesn't mean that we have to only stand up for ourselves in the context of standing up for everybody else as well.
0: Yeah, I guess I didn't clarify my question, but you answered something different. In other words, you if we say that the 50s was the uh, the silver age or the golden age of borschtbelt Belt humor uh, that I mm-hmm. remember from television in the early 1960s, um, it sort of morphed into... Uh, the social justice movements where it's almost like you don't need to be Jerry Lewis up at Grossinger's, but you can actually be marching and, and making a difference, uh, marching, uh, sure. for the sake of social justice and, 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 and allowing all ethnic minorities, especially the African American community, uh, to get what they want. So that
1: and, would- be- And also, I would say, think of the icon of these, uh, I think laudable activists marching hand-in-hand, hand, the blacks, the, I think particularly of Rabbi Heschel, joining hands with the blacks, and, the, and that itself, that's very laudable, it's very, it's heartwarming, but when you look at the result of that, it didn't earn the Jews really, um, shall we say, equality among the oppressed well okay sure. this is
0: yes that's but 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 based on what we've been talking about we would say is that you know uh, it, it, the jerry lewis's uh and the don rickles and the others who started in the 50s and although many people say they were great in the early 60s as well those people their their minds turned to different ways uh in terms of dealing with the larger society and hoping to make those changes i was actually just thinking more on a simple level uh dr juni if you talk about the black comics of the 1940s 50s and 60s um the, the, you know, we of course the, the, one of them that springs to mind is the uh very much discredited bill cosby but if we talk mm-hmm. about nipsey russell or moms mabley or others or even sammy davis jr who you know did a lot of actually a lot of Jewish humor as well because he converted to Judaism, and the type of humor that you saw on display in the fifties and sixties by black comedians would probably, in a way, parallel your what you discovered about Jewish comedians and about Jewish jokes, <laughs> right?
1: Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, no, I don't see the theory different, and um, that's why I mean most of my papers are not Jewish by title, although a lot of the examples I bring in are Jewish humor because I live it and I know about it. But sure, it's basically self-effacing humor of oppressed minorities who don't have many options. And it cuts across the board. I mean, I've done some smaller studies. I I used to find, in some of the classes I taught um, at NYU, um, it was basically international sampling and there were very few Americans there. And I got to see, I mean, I sometimes would ask people, why don't you bring in some ethnic jokes? from your society, from your community, that all follow the same path. So, so path. what
0: we could do is if we would trace, for example, the humor today, let's say, I'm not sure if I'm I'm getting it right, but let's say the humor uh, of Chris Rock or Eddie Murphy or people who are uh, uh, exemplary of, of, of African-American humor today, if they are still doing similar riffs to what was done um, 30, 40 years ago, then that would definitely be a barometer as to, the yes. perceived sense of, of 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 racism and the perceived sense of oppression that would still exist,
1: right? Right. Let, let me just add a note over here. The I, the basic idea of humor, if we think in terms of little kids, right? So little kids' jokes. See, uh, uh, the, the theme is the child wants to say something but wouldn't dare saying it with a straight face. So if you say, "Well, this kid who is a silly kid said so and so," they can go ahead and use all kinds of. Um, derogatory terms, um, let's say toilet kinds of words that are not usually used in in the kinds of discourse that they have with their family. And the excuse is, oh, it's a joke. So essentially having a joke is a way, so think back to my father with the rabbi there. He would never say, hey, you know, rabbis have this belief that things are well. They're not well. It's off the wall. He wouldn't say that. But when it's talking about about some rabbi in the shtetl and some town fool who says it, okay, that's a joke. Now I can say that. I can say that and I can laugh about it because I distance myself from it. So essentially, when you think of what the black comedians are doing, I mean, you're sitting there and calling yourself basically the most derogatory terms you can think of for a black person. And that's okay. You're getting a laugh because you're saying, no, that's not me. That's uh, them saying it. So it's humorous, just a disguised way of saying, here is what my inner feelings are, but I am not responsible for them because I've put in enough insulation between it and where I am. So
0: I think, Dr. Juni, uh, we've come up with perhaps, uh, instead of necessarily watching uh, documentaries uh, that oppressively uh, bring us back into the concentration camps and bring us back onto the streets of the Warsaw Ghetto, I think we've come up with another tissue of possibility. Which is to scan and, 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 and read some of the, the self-effacing, uh, humorous gallows and gas chamber humor. And maybe from that way to really gauge how terrible the suffering and how terrible, uh, the oppression was. And it might be a more inventive and maybe strike the, strike chords that aren't so maudlin and and packaged, and maybe it allows us to Mm. open ourselves up as well to maybe see why did you find that funny. And maybe instead of just watching a video and saying, look how terrible the Jews have suffered, maybe using Jewish humor on Tisha B'Av specifically uh, might be a way to reflect and to think about the Tsarist that we have bubbling within ourselves, and not just a Tsarist that's around us. And maybe we could actually use that as a way. Uh,
1: add, I'm not saying that this is a better way of doing things. I think it's an alternate way, especially when the standard face on approach is too heavy to handle. I mean you think of Shalom Aleichem's basic description of Jewish humor, it's one eye is laughing and the other eye is weeping. So it allows us to look at, at the laughing as a way of just getting to the weeping Without being overwhelmed by it, which is what we need sometimes because we need some distance to understand trauma. When you're in the trauma and all in it, you don't understand, you are totally sunk into it. You have to distance yourself sometimes to understand what is really going on with it.
0: And, uh, well, I think that is, uh, that is a, a, a very positive uh, diagnosis for uh, what we can do. So let's, if we've, hopefully, we've given. If anybody's listening to this on Tisha B'Av, we've given you another option and from Tisha B'Av and beyond. Dr. Juni, thank you again uh, for giving us this time. And we hope you have a meaningful Tisha B'av and maybe a humorous one as well. <laughs> I'm Afram Kivilevich. This has been Standing in Two Worlds.